It's Aspen Ideas to Go from the Aspen Institute. I'm Trisha Johnson. On Monday, President Trump meets with Russian President Vladimir Putin in Helsinki. The one-on-one comes as Putin's government increasingly acts like an outlaw state, launching cyber attacks, executing journalists and dissidents, and testing Western alliances. It's an uneasy time, says Evelyn Farkas of the Atlantic Council. International relations are being strained. There is now a fight for the international order and a struggle between democracy and autocracy. And we have to be really clear about what side we're on. Aspen Ideas To Go brings you compelling talks from onstage events hosted by the Aspen Institute. The Institute is a nonpartisan forum for values-based leadership and the exchange of ideas. Today's discussion is from the Aspen Ideas Festival and was held on June 25th. While the allegations of Russia's 2016 election meddling may dominate American headlines, Vladimir Putin's government has also occupied parts of Georgia, annexed Crimea, and become involved in the Syrian civil war. Why is Russia becoming a criminal state on the world stage? Is it because the country is nostalgic for pre-Soviet days? Maybe Russia sees an existential threat from the United States. Or perhaps it's because Putin wants to stay in power. While the United States may not be at war with Russia militarily, we have been viciously attacked on the Internet. So what is America's policy toward Russia? And how should the U.S., Europe, and the West as a whole respond? Steve Clemens of The Atlantic leads a discussion with several Russia experts. Peter Wittig is a former German ambassador to the U.S. Corey Schocke is Deputy Director General of the International Institute for Strategic Studies at the Hoover Institution. Andrew Weiss oversees research on Russia and Eurasia for the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. And Evelyn Farkas, who you heard at the top of the show, is a national security analyst for MSNBC. Steve Clemens opens the conversation. So, Corey, let me just start out. You know, I, I, um, as someone who's been watching Russia for uh, a long time, and Russia's always complicated. There's always, you know, both times where we've engaged Russia, uh, times where we have to had conflict with her. But the kind of question we're asking today is a fundamentally different one, of whether or not Russia has stepped forward and has become a, a, a criminal state in a way that we haven't seen. We've seen in James Bond films and dreamt about them. I was taken uh, with a guy on stage yesterday said we, 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 in our art, in our dreams, we see our tomorrow. So to some degree, I'm wondering if, if we're now dreaming of a very different kind of James Bond criminal state. And I want to read to you something in 2007 that Putin said. Uh, this is directly what uh, quoted from Putin. Only two decades ago, the world was ideologically and economically split, and its security was provided by the massive strategic potential of two superpowers. But that order has been replaced by a unipolar world dominated only by America. It is the world of one master and one sovereign. When he said this, you could sort of feel him seething. And I'm just interested in how you see Frame Russia today, how you see its character, and what has driven that character. So like Evelyn, I would make a distinction between the Kremlin and Russians, Um, not only because I I genuinely believe there is a distinction, that is that President Putin and the people around him are essentially a mafia state. Um, And And you don't say those words lightly, right? No, and therefore can't bear the scrutiny of exposure, um, including to their own people. So, So yes, I think they're evil. Yes, I think they're corrupt. Yes, I think they are profoundly nostalgic for the days when Russia mattered. Because if you look at the 
at the data on Russia, right? The, the three statistics that, for me, are most meaningful, GDP per capita in Russia in 1990 was $3,800, right? Uh, in 2014, it was $15,000. And now it's back down to $7,800. So, so the choices that Putin made, he, the, the, the rise of the oligarchs, the privatization of things into hands that were politically trustworthy or penalized hugely Magnitsky and company if they were not. Mm. So yes, what we have seen is a Russia yearning for the days in which it was powerful and it is manifestly not powerful now. And so they're playing a spoiler game. They are, they are taking asymmetric attacks on strong, vibrant societies in order to try and cultivate um, disbelief that there is anything different and better about the West than about Russia. And, and we need to joyously hold hands and refute that. Andrew, where does Corey get it wrong? <laughs> By the way, right. take his view rather than mine. He's a genuine Russia expert. I think it's a mistake to use economic determinism to talk about Russia. Because if you look at the indicators that Corey's citing, Russia on paper looks like a weaker country. It clearly has a smaller economy, smaller military. But it has a disproportionate desire to use its tools to do things that shake up the international but system what, I mean, that it feels is disadvantageous. What made it that way? I mean, one of the things, when I go to Moscow and I, I interviewed a guy named Sergei Karaganov recently, he has a very different narrative over there. I mean, he's a pretty decent guy. I mean, he did come up with what, what's called the Karaganov Doctrine, which if there are a lot of Russian nationals somewhere you can invade and take over and kind of bring back government. But, but, but Sergei, sees American um, arrogance after the period where it came in as the biggest driver of what's happening in Russia today. That the humiliations that the Russian people and the Russian government experienced at our hand as they were reorganizing the society is the thing that's really driven uh, Putin to try and position himself as the Ronald Reagan morning in Moscow kind of guy. And, and I'm just wondering if there's not something legitimate in that narrative. There's no doubt that Russia was really weak in the early 1990s and that a lot of things happened that a strong Russia would have opposed. But much of the grievance that you're talking about is what we would call a narrative. Mm. It's something that Putin has used as a way of legitimizing himself and kind of mobilizing support. The real driver of the current crisis that we're in right now is not that set of grievances. Mm. It's the Russian belief, right or wrong, that in 2011, 2012, it became crystal clear to them with the street demonstrations in Moscow that the Obama administration sought the violent overthrow of that government. So for the Russians, sort of national security establishment, all of the last six or seven years of pushing back, using the asymmetrical tools that Corey was talking about, is a way of sort of defending themselves against what they believe is an existential threat from the United States. And then when opportunities fell on their lap, like the Ukrainian revolution in 2014, where they felt, again, this was ultimately aimed at their national security, they have taken these steps that we find completely, I think rightfully, unacceptable. And the question for the West, and this is where I think the Western policy response is really now, 
at a, a moment. Is there testing. a Western policy response? I think it's right now you, it's in deep crisis. Yeah. Because so what, of, what is the Western yeah. policy response? How would you so it? right now, Donald Trump has thrown all of that playbook that was established after the Russian invasion of Ukraine and basically started to throw it out the window. He's said things in recent weeks questioning whether Crimea was really Russian all along. He's suggested they that it's really important Russian, to get yeah. along with the Russians as if that's an end in itself. When in fact, what the West is really about is a set of shared principles, a set of norms and expectations of what states can and can't do. Putin has routinely transgressed and gone beyond those. It's up to the leaders of the West to show that there's a penalty and that there's a certain set of principles we're all willing to, to really defend. Donald Trump now throws all of that into question. Evelyn, I want you to give us some insight to all the top secret things you know about the, and give us a clinical look of whether we really are already at war militarily with the Russians. We sometimes talk about cold wars, hot wars, because what, a lot of what we've seen in the harassment um, of, uh, you know, that, that's going on between, you know, Russian bombers and jets and planes, that there's a whole substructure of things that we don't read about in the New York Times or Post every day that I know you get special access to. So how bad is it? <laughs> well, I think we are not at war with Russia militarily. That much is obvious. However, we have been attacked by the Russians. Mm -hmm. Our sovereignty has been attacked through their cyber and social right. media and bribery manipulation of our political system. We have them so-called so cyber bots sitting on our electrical grid. I mean, sitting there waiting to do what? I mean, so there's a potential for further attacks, and those attacks then start running into this area where asymmetric attacks are not defined right now as military mm. attacks, but if you use cyber weapons to take down the electric grid on the eastern seaboard, well, most people would see that as an attack, a military attack on the United States, or if it happened in, in Canada or in the European states, one in Europe. And what Putin has done all along very cleverly is everything that he's done, all of these attacks that he's conducted, and there's a whole list of things because I can include the you know, extraterritorial assassinations of journalists and other opponents of the Kremlin regime, the Putin regime in, in other countries, Ukraine, um, uh, UK, and possibly it looks like in the US. All of those things that he's done, none of them trigger Article 5 responses by the United States and its allies. And so he's been very clever to use his relative weakness and our relative weakness, <laughs> which is the need for some kind of threshold, uh, a high enough threshold to warrant collective military response against him. And I can also elaborate a little bit on some of the other points. I think he used grievance politics very effectively mm. to rally the Russian people and to sell many people in Europe in so, particular so and us. So was there on, a grievance? I think what happened was that Russia lost their empire when mm. the Soviet Union collapsed. They were upset. They didn't want to be treated like any other European country. That's I mean, exactly. France went through that. Right. Austria is still going through that. I lived there for two years in the 90s. Um, you know, there are a whole host of countries still grappling with the loss of empire. And the, for the Russians, it's a process. Unfortunately, a whole bunch of other things happened to make it worse for them. And this crony, you know, corrupt, crony, capitalist, not free market economy system came into place, run by these autocratic, corrupt people. They have their, their you know, hands around the Russian state now, you know, around the throat of the Russian people. 
And their number one objective is to maintain their power. Number two, demonstrate that Russia is great again. That's also linked, though, to staying in power at this point. The initial gambit was we're going to make your lives better economically. We're going to put more borscht in your bowl, if you will. You know, that's like the equivalent for the turkey in the pot or the chicken in the pot in the U.S. equation. Um, so. Vodka, once please, once they realized that the corruption was squeezing out all the entrepreneurship <laughs> and the dynamism out of the economy, and that wasn't going to continue, right. meaning your livelihood was not going to continue to increase, a la Corey's earlier comment, then they switched gears and they adopted this nationalist you know, rhetoric and went hardcore with the Nova Russia and this idea that you know, now you have to rescue Russians who are imperiled in other countries. So I can go on and on about this, but I but, think there's a lot right. of kernels of truth here. But and then it gets back to protecting, again, number one objective, keeping him in power. And that's why Syria matters. That's why all these interventions into other states right. like Iraq and other things that you might bring up <laughs> matter to Putin. Long list. Yeah. Long list. So thank you. But I, I, before I get to the ambassador, I want to ask Corey just about this point about you know, cyber espionage, cyber war, um, the things we've seen come in. Um, you know our current Secretary of Defense better than anyone else I know. Um, Although Jeff Goldberg thinks he knows him too, so you know it, 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 it could be kind of a rivalry there. I'm not sure, but 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 um, with what what I find staggeringly shocking uh, is that Mike Rogers, the now uh, uh, former head of the National Security Agency, now the new director, hopefully we get him here next year to Aspen, Paul Nakasone, have not gotten the combatant orders to respond to these issues. They said a very, uh, it was one of the most shocking moments in a congressional hearing I've ever seen. Usually you go to con congressional hearings and nothing interesting happens. And uh, this time it did. And he said he had not received the orders that he would have needed to mess with Russia. And what, what do you think about that? And what's happening with your, I mean, Jim Mattis could have helped in that. Uh, well, the Secretary of All Defense can speak for his little <laughs> self. Okay. Um, but uh, I would remind you that Mike Nakasone is the guy who, who created the cyber tool that impeded the Iranian nuclear program so That's called Stuxnet. Um, you heard which, it right here. This is a very interesting moment in its own. is a thing uh, of beauty. Yeah. As an American taxpayer, right. I'm extremely pleased and happy we proved that good at our work. Mm -hmm. um, for me, the biggest surprise about the Trump administration is not the things they have prevented, but the things they have permitted. Because mm -hmm. given President Trump's personal views on Russia and on Putin, I actually would have expected Russia policy to be a lot worse than a Trump hmm. administration. And there are legitimate reasons not to lean forward on, on offensive cyber tools, mm -hmm. even with the Russians, right? President Obama had that choice and turn, averted his eyes from it right. four times in the run-up to the Russian interference in our elections. So, so it's not a crazy thing to do. I, I personally think it's too cautious. Right. But it's not an outrageous thing to do. And um, Evelyn and I spar about this a fair amount. Yeah. I think the administration has actually done a really good job at imposing sanctions on the Russians. It's true that they didn't carry out everything that the Congress passed, but most administrations don't carry out everything the Congress passes on sanctions. Right. Um, and the Trump administration um, bounced out 60 Russian diplomats from the United States, more than every other country combined in response mm -hmm. to Russia poisoning with chemical means 
a, a citizen of Great Britain. So they've actually not done half badly, and I would have thought they would be yeah. much worse. Thank you for that, a fair and balanced. Um, Ambassador, I want to... Look at to, me, I got fair uh, and Yeah, fair and balanced. Ambassador, I want to ask you, because I'm not done with this issue of how we got here to Russia, what some of the roots were. Two years ago here at Aspen, I had the privilege of interviewing Richard Haas, now President of the Council on Foreign Relations and, you know, regular, you know, friend of yours in Morning Joe. And, and you had him at the Berliner Salon that you host, and you know Richard quite well. Richard said on this stage that he thought it was a mistake that we didn't bring Russia into NATO, that we didn't find a pathway uh, for Russia into NATO, that it thus created, which he had, he had advocated and written a white paper for uh, in an earlier Republican administration when he was in uh, the State Department at that time, and, and that he said it was led to a dynamic of us versus them, and that there was no. So I'm interested in what you think about that. Did, did, did we have some liability in creating conditions where we're getting back to what feels like Cold War rivalries? Well, I don't know really whether that was a realistic option to take Russia in. I mean, uh, some people flirted with this idea, but early, well, Richard Haas flirted with yeah, it. Yeah. Uh, but you know, we have seen over the ten years now, over the past ten years, a consistent pattern, a long list of grievances with Russia that affected Europeans directly, starting from occupation of parts of Georgia ten years ago, 2014 annexation of Crimea, a landmark, a threshold decision, basically redrawing the map in Europe, uh, and, and basically the end of the post-Cold War order, mm -hmm. then an involvement in Syria, meddling in our uh, internal affairs, questioning arms control agreements, etc. Violating you know, arms a, control agreements. A new emphasis on uh, nuclear postures, etc. So that's a long list. And the European response was, I would say, twofold. First, um, be strong in defense, stronger than before. Um, you know, the enhanced forward presence, um, stationing soldiers at the uh, Russian border, Germany is part of that. And, but also be more resilient as a society. Um, strengthen our resilience against this hyper, uh, hybrid warfare, against cyber attacks, etc. That's the pressure track. Mm. Sanctions are part of it. But secondly, and this is, I say this from a European perspective, this is equally important, the dialogue track, the um, channels of communication that have to be kept open. Chancellor Merkel was the one who talked hundreds of times to Putin, not as a buddy-buddy relationship, mm. but you know, to keep the channels of communication open. Why? First, we have some issues to solve with Russia, be it counterterrorism, be it nuclear non-proliferation, be it Syria, be it Ukraine, be it North Korea, where Russia has a stake. And secondly, I'm worried about um, an unwanted, unintended military escalation that nobody wants, mm. but that is a real danger. And so we need military-to-military -military contacts, and we need contacts of the leadership. So don't forget that dialogue track, that channel of communication track. And from a Euro last sense, from a European perspective, um, we are neighbors. Geography matters. We are neighbors. We don't want to bring Russia down to, down to its knees. Russia um, will be more nationalistic, more chauvinistic if we weaken it. So we have to live with that giant in our neighborhood. And, and that, that's why we have to have a balanced 
um, consistent Russia policy. I don't see that happening all the time here. You're listening to a bonus episode of Aspen Ideas To Go. We have an abundance of great content from the Aspen Ideas Festival and other institute events. So for the months of July and August, we're dropping two episodes a week. Head to our website, aspenideas.org, to find an archive of talks you may have missed. You can also find a list of our shows on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, NPR One, or your favorite podcast player. Now back to our featured talk. Here's Steve Clemens. If I were to read the transcript of Corey's comments a moment ago, I would think, and I would, I'm putting words in your mouth, think that you give the Trump administration basically about a B uh, in its yeah. performance on, on Russia. You probably give it a D or F. No, but I, but what, well, do you, what do you give? What, what does Germany give Donald Trump? I refuse. I'm still a diplomat. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm on my way to, my uh, to so London. I'm on the way out. I want to stamp my little cloven hoof about yeah. this Russia and yeah. NATO business. Right. Because if Russia would behave the way a NATO member behaves, which is commit not to change national boundaries by violence, Mm -hmm. to commit to cooperative solutions, to meet its obligations under the OSCE, under the seven arms control agreements they freely entered into that they are currently in violation of. Actually, they would have a good case to be a NATO member. And the reason Russia is alienated from NATO is Russia's behavior, not NATO's behavior. Thank you for that. Um, I want to jump into another thing. There was a, um, the fact, we've already talked a little bit about the cyber, but I want to go a little bit different, you know, deeper with, with Andrew, just where it came from. And, and Putin as, as the, the sort of person that, that we see as all things you know, Russian now. And I, I have to tell you that whether it's talking to Bill Browder, uh, who has been, you know, worked with, with Magnitsky uh, and was, has been at Aspen Ideas last year. I don't know if some of you saw Bill Browder often on TV. Uh, really is the one that's been pushing the adoption of the Magnitsky ad all over the world, which is to rate human rights violations and others. Bill told me something and when we interviewed him at Aspen about how uh, Vladimir Putin parks his money with oligarchs around the world and, you know, gets 10% or 20% of whatever deals get done and then parks money with various places. And it was very interesting uh, because the, um, what, what was there, let me just read this piece. The, the, the documents in the Panama Papers revealed, because uh, this is a piece in the Atlantic, that Putin's old friend Sergei Roldugin, a cellist and the godfather to Putin's elder daughter had his name on funds worth some two billion dollars. It was an implausible fortune for a little known musician and the journalist showed that these funds were likely a piggy bank for Putin's inner circle. So the so the, the, the narrative, at least, that Julia Yaffe, my colleague at the Atlantic had, is that the Panama Papers um, were the things that caused Putin the deepest personal embarrassment and angered him and that the decision to engage in cyber war against the say to hack John Podesta's email to go after our democracy per se was was a tactical emotional one and I'm just interested in whether you think that's a correct narrative Andrew. No I don't buy it. I think, I think ultimately that is an excuse. The, the reality here is in 2014 the Russian government believed that the train of coup d'etat which happened in Ukraine and their right. narrative the next stop was Moscow. And so starting in 2014, the Russian government initiated a series of kind of small bore covert actions 
to try to undermine unity in the West, to plant wedges between the United States and its European partners, and to create disturbance in the major industrialized democracies. They help foster the populist eruption, which Donald Trump is a great beneficiary of, and we see that populist germ spreading throughout Western Europe as well, and Eastern Europe. The question is, at some point, Russia decided to go to a new level to take what was done for espionage purposes to gather information through cyber techniques and then basically create something new by doxing to mm -hmm. hand over wholesale a large database of information collected by its intelligence operations to embarrass and cause disruption against uh, basically the US democratic system, to throw our system into chaos, to create this kind of false equivalence of you know the US democracy is not what it's cracked up to be, the US is shot through with corruption and hypocrisy and double standards, and to sort of send a message both to Russian people that what you you know idealized at home, you know is, is so great isn't so great after all. All of those steps in the end I think were to make the US less governable and to kind of handicap what they expected to be a Clinton administration coming to office, either to create illegitimacy or to kind of undermine its effectiveness. They exceeded in some ways similar to the 9-11 hijackers, well beyond Way their wildest beyond expectations. And so we had a US presidential campaign, which by fluke was decided by about 70,000 votes in three or so critical states. And we now have a political crisis, the likes of which has never been experienced in my, my professional lifetime. So we are inward looking, we are coming apart at the seams in terms of our traditional alliance relationships. We have a leader who no longer sees the international order that was created after World War II, that the US is the steward and the underwriter of, as inherently beneficial to the United States. All of those things are huge wins to the Russians. So when you look, you know, set, you know flash forward to a month from now, to the uh, Putin-Trump meeting, which is expected to happen in mid-July, don't get fixated on what are they negotiating and you know are there going to be sanctions you know quid pro quos and you know changes to us policy on ukraine the big win here is a us in crisis which is no longer a direct threat to the russian regime and That's that a is uh, that is a, a reward which just pays off day in day out and everything else for mm -hmm. the Russians is gravy. Thank you that, for that. I'm going to file that as a letter objective. to the editor in response to Julia's but can I, piece. But can I say something yeah, that sure. it is possible that he, his actions were, he did have a knee-jerk reaction to those papers because he did believe that the, the Panama Papers and then the Paradise Papers. He thought papers, we were behind it. He did yeah. believe that we were behind it. He did not, he doesn't understand how journalists would work independently and then somehow together. So he, he does see that as part of our attempt to take him down, part of our attempt to force regime change. And it is true that his thinking with regard to Ukraine was absolutely affected by, um, and without getting into sources and methods, but there's a lot of discussion about this by former officials that he was affected by Hillary Clinton's coming out and saying what she said about the Russian parliamentary election, saying that they were essentially um, not legitimate, and that and that he felt that she was in effect challenging him and his hold on power. So let me Can ask. I just add that if his actions could bear public scrutiny, he wouldn't have to have that concern. Let me so just quibble with that for a second. If you go to Moscow, and I mean I say this as someone who I'm going to embarrass myself. Grew up in Beverly Hills and worked at a hedge fund. What? You go to Moscow and it's embarrassing. So every Russian knows that their leaders are wealthy beyond the wildest imagination of plutocrats mm. in the West. That is not news to the Russian people. And so the idea that you know some 
papers documenting how much funny business is going on. Russia is an oil-producing country that generates hundreds of billions of dollars in profit for its leaders every day of the week. Like, that is the nature of the Russian socioeconomic Can I, can I add one thing? Yeah. It's also education. It's, I did not have that it's, perspective. It's a okay. neo-fascist system, culture, political system that they have in place in Russia. And that's the danger, because I believe that we need to speak out not just about Putin and against Putin, but also against Putinism. Because the same kind of thinking that the Russian people have day to day, like, yeah, they're corrupt, it's the way it is. But how you know, do you do that? My place in the socioeconomic I mean, I, hierarchy is set. I can't do anything about it. Evelyn, how do you do that when you have the trends going on in the United States you have going on? I mean, like, it, you know, I... Well, I, that's I, what I'm obliquely yeah, referring to. Yeah, okay. You know, that it well, can happen anywhere. Good, just want to be clear. So let me, but I want to, before we get, go down that, that road, I want to ask um, Corey and Evelyn and then, and then get back to the ambassador, but, but ask the two of you, why have we been so pathetic in, in not seeing this and responding? You know, I, I mean, when, when you sort of look at this, you just raised Paul Noxoni and Stuxnet. Some of you may remember Alex Gibney's film Zero Day. So this is, if you haven't seen it, watch it. But it's about uh, the, the U.S.-Israeli operation to uh, basically wreck Iran's centrifuges. And it was one of the first state-based applications of malware that went in to destroy a system. It's a fascinating discussion. And no government official... Corey's not a government official, but has actually admitted that the U.S. and Israeli governments did this. So, so if you so, haven't yeah. read uh, David Sanger's terrific new Sanger, book yes, exactly. on, Sang yeah. on cyber war, he it. lays it out in great detail. Beautifully, and David was very involved with this film as well. But given that, and given the fact that one of the things that happened at that is that we, essentially the code got everywhere, and people, a state, the, the, the state malware application just skyrocketed, where states all over are now in this business, in part because they mimicked what we did to Iran. And so we saw the capabilities out there. We the saw West out there. our intelligence. So why have be, the United States been so pathetic in responding or seeing this coming? Evelyn? Because I think we, we know that we set an example, we set the rules. And so once we start changing really? the rules, uh. other countries will feel that they can follow suit. The, there's another area where this happens, the drone, the drone area. So the envelope is being pushed. Countries would like to, to have their own drones and to have armed drones, and you can see where this could right. eventually go. So in the administration, there were a lot of interagency meetings. What do we do about drones and armed drones, and what's our policy? And then how do we get that policy through international fora to get other countries to adopt it? So, you know, norms matter. They really matter. We talked earlier about the strikes against Syria, those pinpoint strikes that the Trump administration undertook to demonstrate that you cannot use weapons of mass destruction against innocent civilians. Mm -hmm. It matters when we stand up for those norms. Right. And so I think we are still grappling with how does one, what are the rules for cyber operations, mm -hmm. offensive or defensive? And and we're not comfortable going farther than we have to for right. obvious reasons because people will start mimicking there's us. A, there's a simple answer on this, which is that when Barack Obama, who's had to make a lot of tough calls throughout his presidency, is confronted with, do you punch back? The reality was the United States has the sharpest rocks in cyberspace, to borrow the line from one of our former cyber robbers, but it lives in the glassiest house. And so right. our society is simply right. more digitized and more vulnerable to an escalatory spiral where the Russians could keep imposing just, pain. Just give and us that a, I mean, it'd be nice President to see a Obama. little example of Where? those rocks. You know, wouldn't I mean? I'd, I'd so, love to see it, but but so Corey, I, I want to come to you. I would have loved to see President yeah. Obama actually use the tools right. of a free society mm -hmm. in the fall of 2016 
to admit that three different times the Russians had already penetrated American government right. systems. And here, I, you know, we think about the tools of a free society. We think about our vulnerabilities mm -hmm. all of the time. And we're not leaning into what we're good at as a society. Right, right. And if you look at the way the French presidential candidate, Macron, handled Russian interference in the French elections, mm -hmm. that's the model of what President Obama should have done in the fall of 2016, which is trust that, that in a democracy, free people can make sensible judgments and information is our friend. And right. the German right. government so, threatened. Right. So the German, let's get back to the German yeah. government here. Um, Ambassador Wittig, you have your own intelligence service. You spy, you watch, you watch spy on the Russians, you see things happen, you see you know, the killings in, in England. We had the uh, founder and creator of Russian television killed in the DuPont Hotel. Uh, in Washington, D.C. Things were growing. You, you just doc, you know, went through a nice inventory of Russia's muscle in the world and various things. As you've watched this stuff, and I want to ask you a question about the strategic class in Washington, the Russian ambassador, Michael Flynn, some of the people, Paul Manafort, who've gotten wrapped up. In the, I mean, these are all people that we know. Did you see this going to a boil before any of us did? And well, I'm, I don't have a crystal ball here. But you do, I'm not you do, clairvoyant, yeah. but what I can tell you as an observer from the outside, I see that the U.S.-Russia uh, policy is determined by domestic politics. It's the 2016 election that turned Democrats into Russia hawks, and it's the meddling, the Russian meddling, into the domestic affairs of the U.S. that is to a large extent determining um, uh, the policy of this administration and, and of the Obama administration towards Russia. I don't know whether this is a wise prism through which you have to look at Russia. I would prefer... Very delicately and diplomatically. I, I would, um, I, I would uh, rather prefer if we would look at the order and the challenge that Russia poses to our common Western order. We have to, I think, act in unison. We as the West have to act in unison in solidarity vis-a-vis -vis Russia. Right. And we're not doing that. One day we hear we need more sanctions um, against Russia. I would say um, parts of Washington are trigger happy when it comes to sanctions. And we are, you know, some protagonists are losing focus what sanctions should do. They should change the behavior. They should not just punish. They have a purpose. They are not an end in itself. So one day it's more sanctions. The next day is a suggestion that we should uh, you know, reinvent the G8 instead yeah. of the G7. There's no consistency You were surprised here. by that, I think. So yeah. if, Everybody if, was surprised if, by if that. we're not acting in unison, yeah. I mean, you know, the Western, so, so we, just, will not, we will not be able to, um, you know, have the upper hand. Right. So just before I would go to the audience, because I want to go to all of you for your questions, Peter, let me, let me just feel it. So acting in unison, feeling as if we are, have a, a shared purpose, shared challenges in the world to work together. Um, when I know this from one of your colleagues whom I can't identify, that when Donald Trump sat across from Angela Merkel and in one of their, their early meetings... You know more than I. Uh, <laughs> he took I out there. a paper and pen. Yeah, he took out a paper and pen and he wrote uh, an invoice to Angela Merkel. Mm -hmm. handed her a piece of paper and said, 
you owe us $2 trillion. And he said, but I'm willing to deal. We can, we can you know, work it down. And I mean, and, and my understanding is that her face was completely ashen. You can wash dishes. <laughs> and, and I'm just, on a scale of one to 10, how would you rate the health of US-German relations? Mr. <laughs> <laughs> um, serving ambassador. You know, metrics uh, are, are not the right measurement here. We have um, divergences of views. Um, we are in a difficult phase in transatlantic relations. Uh, that, that is no secret. We have trade issues. Um, we have um, issues how to deal with Russia. Um, uh, we have the burden sharing issue, which is a legitimate issue from an American and also from a German perspective. Uh, we see uh, with apprehension uh, that this order that um, we cherished is in danger to um, unravel. Um, so it is a very challenging phase of our transatlantic relations. Tori? I, I, let me, let, let, let me um, add, um, I'm optimistic. We, we have a strong base of, of German-American relations, um, and um, I think we can overcome this, but uh, we have um, a difficult chapter right now. Do you agree, Tori? I, too, think we can overcome this, uh, but I... What's your scale, 1 to 10, health of U.S.-German relations? I would give it a 3. Wow. I actually, I can't think of a time, even during the run-up to the Iraq War in 2003, when relations were this bad with the German government. Because That's what, what I call a tweetable moment. What President Trump is calling into question isn't a particular policy, but the fundament of Western cooperation and the basic bargain of the last 70 years. I'd agree with that, although we had some pretty bad times you know, back in the 70s and the 80s, mm -hmm. um, certainly the run-up to um, the Pershings, et cetera. I think what's more important to focus on is that there is now a fight for the international order and a struggle between democracy and autocracy. Mm -hmm. And we have to be really clear about what side we're on. Unfortunately, our president doesn't fully seem to understand what's at stake or he doesn't care. I, I don't want to go to the second one because because the international order is what has kept America safe and prosperous. And we didn't do it because we were benevolent. It was self-interested. We were selfish in setting up the system, but we happened to be able to do it in a way where it wasn't zero sum, meaning everyone won something. We won the most, sure, but it worked for everyone. Andrew, quick thoughts before I go to the audience. I think the, the collapse of U.S.-German relations is probably the biggest unspoken tragedy of the last year and a half of the Trump administration. The relentless needling of the chancellor, the fixation on kind of Breitbart-type rhetoric about immigration and about uh, the, the, the decadence of the EU, all of this stuff is the nativist, nationalist side of Trump. It doesn't get enough attention when it's applied to the U.S.-German equation. You can't have an effective U.S. strategy towards Russia without German cooperation and buy-in, and we basically sawed that leg off the table. You know, I, I asked that Excellent question purposely that. because when you look at it, if you were to ask yourself at the beginning, you know, your point on autocracy, David Frum had, uh, you know, a cover story in The Atlantic called How to Build an Autocracy, yes. with you know who on the cover. Yes. But, but I think the broader question is, if you were to have written an inventory of what strategic objectives Vladimir Putin had, and I have to tell you, Fiona Hill, one of the most brilliant people on Russia and Vladimir Putin, uh, is, is spoke here at Aspen uh, 
two years ago, three years ago, I interviewed her about Vladimir. Really one of the most knowledgeable people next to Angela Stent on Russia and, and uh, Putin. Now worked for Donald Trump, works in that administration, so it's not like they didn't have somebody to help them understand these things. But you're, you know, what I ask the question about U.S.-German issues and what's happening, because it's very high on Vladimir Putin's list of objectives to see this split happen. So right. I just want to make that point. Right. It's Aspen Ideas to go. Thanks for listening. President Trump's upcoming meeting Monday with Russian President Vladimir Putin is a good thing, says German Ambassador Peter Wittig. Now the question is, what is the content? And, and I think there, uh, the hopes cannot be overblown because in one meeting you can only touch on certain things. Coming up, he gives his thoughts on how the meeting might play out. Another way to listen to Aspen Ideas To Go is on Sirius XM's Insight Channel. Listen at different times on Saturday, Monday, and Tuesday on Channel 121. Find a schedule on their website. Here's the rest of today's show. Steve Clemens. Let me go to all of you. We've got, boy, people right in the audience all over. Uh, we're going to do fast questions and fast answers, okay? Right here in the middle. Um, to me, it's really obvious that this administration is totally playing into Putin's agenda. Mm. And uh, driving a wedge between us and NATO is, question. is where it, what do you guys think about that? Yes, no. you're right. There, next question right here. There we go. Uh, my question is go the totally elephant green, in yeah. the room. It's also very specific because you guys are experts and we're just regular Aspen mm -hmm. residents. Mm -hmm. Is um, How much do we know about how Russia interfered with the, uh, the four states that caused the election to turn to Trump? I've read so many different articles, I can't seem to get a final view on, like, we know that they did Facebook, we know that they did this kind of permanent, you know, uh, making people's opinion the nativism, but what did they do in Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, uh, Michigan, etc. So there are 21 American states who had their uh, voter registration um, tested by Russian intelligence, and quite a number of those states were actually compromised in the process. And those four states were among those 21 states. But as American citizens out there, as I assume you folks mostly are. Um, you should be concerned in a different way because it took an awful long time for us to know that there were 21 states, which states those were, and on top of it, those states took a very long time. There's a famous hearing that Mark Warner and Richard Burr, Senator Burr and Senator Warner did with the staff member of the Department of Homeland Security where this began to roll out. And at the time, John Kelly, now Chief of Staff, then Secretary of Homeland Security, saw this as classified material that shouldn't be discussed in public. So that's a very interesting question. When you have a penetration of an election system, at what point does this need to be transparent? Do people need to know about it and need point, to take strategies? Because it was not out there. At every point, yeah. on top of information that, is you, our friend. On top of that, you also had the Information Research Agency, that in, in organization that's Russian, been yeah. now served with indictments by Robert um, Mueller. Yeah. Robert Mueller conducting through Facebook and other social media, Twitter, et cetera, targeting, buying ads literally to target people specifically in those swing states, and we know that they tailored those ads towards people. Again, more, of, more will come out as a result of the Mueller investigations. Right here, this gentleman, the gentleman in blue, next to the gentleman in blue. Thank there you, Steve. Go. I'd like to know what message you think America should be taking to the Kremlin. Hmm. 
I'm going to give this to Peter. What message should we be taking? To well, first of all, I think um, a summit between Putin and Trump is not a bad thing. It is an anomaly, really, that the two or two leading powers in the world are not on speaking terms on a presidential level. So, first of all, it's a good thing. Now, the question is, what is the content? And and I think there, uh, the hopes cannot be overblown because in one meeting you can only touch on certain things. Mm -hmm. But it's important what will be part of the meeting. Interestingly enough, from what we know, the NATO summit um, will be before the meeting and not after. So the president will be bound in a way by what the NATO summit says. And we hope that this provides the framework for, uh, for what he discusses with Putin. So I think um, certain things should be part of that, like Ukraine, like Syria, Crimea, certain grievances that we have should be part of that summit. But what will come out of that, I think most we can hope for, is the beginning of a process. Andrew? I think just, just the real quick. Is, if I think you play if by you, the rules, we'll help you succeed. Andrew? If you take Donald Trump and all the weirdness out of the equation for a second, we are going to have a competitive and oftentimes adversarial relationship. That's just the reality. The question is, do you manage it well or poorly? There was an incident in February in Syria where a bunch of sort of Russian version of Blackwater military contractors mm -hmm. tested the resolve of US special forces. And it led to uh, serious bloodletting. Hundreds, perhaps, of Russian uh, soldiers were killed. The question is, do we avoid incidents like that in the past? Peter alluded to this a minute ago. Or do we just kind of keep tempting fate? I think there's too much danger and too much risk embedded in the US-Russian equation. It's incumbent on our uh, leaders, whether it's Secretary Mattis, President Trump, to kind of manage that problem. There's not going to be a happy moment where Russia disappears. And we should sort of, I think, start banishing this idea that Russia is so either, you know, it's a country that we can put in the corner and we can just kind of ignore it. There's a wonderful moment in Putin's memoir when he describes chasing a rat into a corner as a kid and the rat jumps on it. And he said he learned at that point, don't corner a rat. I think that's largely true when it comes to Putin as well. E Evelyn, are you for a Putin-Trump dance I, on July 15th? I, I, I am vehemently it's July 15th, opposed right? to it because yeah. I would love to take Trump out of the equation because I think he doesn't understand, well, I don't think he's helping, let's just put it that way. But to go to the question um, about the message, what message should the U.S. be sending, whether the message, or not? Well, okay, so, and certainly I believe we should have dialogue with right. the Russians, especially on arms control issues and strategic stability issues which are related to arms control. And Russia, and Russia does have legitimate grievances and fears when it comes to the military balance, right. nuclear and conventional. So I, I do think we need to have conversations with them because what happens is they jump to the asymmetric, which is very dangerous, and they miscalculate how we and our NATO allies would respond. So that's one thing we should tell the Russians. So if Putin's going to meet go. with Trump, he should tell them, your doctrine is dangerous. What you're doing, all this asymmetric methodology, methodology is dangerous. Stop occupying countries, because that's the only way you're going to get sanctions lifted. Stop uh, aiding and abetting the killing of innocent civilians in Syria. Right. And if you meddle in our elections, there will be further proportionate responses by the United States. So Trump should actually threaten and make him aware of what our very clear, firm perspective is Probability on of good, that outcome? Good, good answer. Right here. Yeah. Hi. Hi. What has to exist for us to put a spotlight on, on the Arctic, where they say the Russians have troops like 100,000 uh, men, and 
uh, Canada, the U.S., Scandinavia, we have, you know, very few, maybe 1,000, okay. 2,000. Quick thoughts on Arctic, Corey. Ratify the law of the sea treaty, which the United States is not only compliant with, but enforces on others, and yet we have not ratified, which it sets the rules for engagement in places like the Arctic in ways that are beneficial to us and our allies, and we could have a lot more standing in arguing that the Russians and the Chinese, for that matter, are in violation of them. Right up here in front. I find it dangerous that the Europeans haven't spent more on their defense. And given that, when do you think uh, Putin's going to proceed? He knows that. So what do you think his next territorial move is and where? Uh, Ambassador Wittig, what's, mm. your, what's your game plan? Well, and why aren't you guys doing more? I mean, seriously. We are doing more. I mean, there was a NATO decision in 2014 and 2016 after the Crimea and the Ukrainian conflict arose. As, as I said before, it was a watershed moment in the history of Europe to move towards a 2% goal, 2% of the GDP within a 10-year time span, sort of incrementally. And at the time, only two or three countries were spending 2%, and we were not among them. And now we are trying our level best to reach that 2% goal. We won't reach it um, uh, probably in two, 2024, but we will be close. Um, that is an important um, ingredient of countering uh, Russia's new assertiveness, and I think it's a legitimate issue to remind the Europeans that right. they have to do more uh, um, on their security, and Obama spoke about it, Trump speaks about it. Is Moldova next? No, because... No. So, so, I mean, I want to just uh, uh, say something about Corey. Corey has written more about this subject than any human being alive, so I just wanted to give her a, a, an I promise I'll be yeah. short. No, no, it is. But, I mean, you have written... I mean, I want to give you credit. So, for, European is, defense expenditure has only gone up by 4% since Russia invaded Crimea. Not to 4% of GDP, but their level of scaredness since <laughs> Russia violated territorial integrity for the first time since 1945 is 4%. That's not anywhere near good enough. But I do not believe the Russians will actually invade a country in Europe because European militaries, underfunded as they are, could still win this war very easily. The Polish military could do it. The Dutch can do it. Even the Germans can do it. <laughs> That's great. Yes, we know something about yeah. the military, I tell you. Hi. I've only heard reasons as far as that makes sense to me, why we should not be, uh, the United States should not be friendly with Russia in the ways it has been in the past few years. Are there any reasons at all that the U.S. can gain as a, as a country from being friendly with the ways it has been with Russia? It's a great question. Not under Vladimir Putin. I disagree. I, I disagree. I really I disagree, disagree too. Yeah. I mean, I, I hope you heard embedded in my comments, both in reference to Richard Haas and others, that I do sort of think the United States uh, did not play a constructive role in helping to prevent this narrative of hum humiliation coming. One. Two, Russia was vital to us in negotiating the Iran deal. Remember the Iran deal? The Iran deal used to stand as, you know, as we think about North Korea, we, of course, don't have anything like an Iran deal in North Korea. Maybe we'll get something. But Russia is a vital strategic player. I I and I have to tell you, I strongly, 
I mean, I, I, I uh, appreciate what Evelyn was saying about Russia just becoming another country, but my friends in Moscow and Russia said, we want what you're doing with China. We want a strategic and economic dialogue with you where we're discussing global affairs as a stakeholder on par with you. And the United States did not want that to happen. And, and I got to tell you, that would have been a cheap price to pay in my book right. for but, some of what we're seeing we today. we did give them. We had by by presidential commission, a by presidential commission established thin, thin, first thin. under Clinton, yeah. then reinvigorated under Obama, and we had all these meetings. And I went to some of these meetings, Jesus, and we talked about counterterrorism, and they didn't want to cooperate with us. So, in theory, yes, we should be working together, and in theory, Russia should be working closer with Europe with and NATO because China is their mid to long term concern. Andrew. The, uh, and Ten seconds. The U.S. and Russia are the world's two largest nuclear weapon states. They right. have special responsibilities to ensure and safeguard the arms control regime that is now at danger of collapse, doesn't collapse entirely. They have special responsibilities to ensure that certain countries like Iran and North Korea mm -hmm. don't pose a significant danger beyond what they already are doing uh, to undermine international security. So there are ways to cooperate even with a country like Russia, and the question is, do you have the ability to mix the forceful, the defensive, the resilience pieces of the policy with the cooperative piece? So far, Donald Trump is really putting the emphasis entirely on the cooperative piece, and that doesn't really stand up to scrutiny. And I agree with that. My point is just that, fundamentally, we have to be very clear-eyed about what Putin wants. With that, I want to thank German Ambassador Peter Whitting. So I hope you'll come back to Aspen with all of your London uh, perspectives. Corey Shockey of the International Institute for Strategic Studies, Evelyn Farkas of the Atlantic Council, Andrew Weiss of the Carnegie Endowment. Thank you all very much, and thank all of you. Peter Wittig served as German ambassador to the United States. He is now the German ambassador to the United Kingdom. Corey Shockey is the author of Safe Passage, and along with Jim Mattis, she edited the book, Warriors and Citizens, American Views of Our Military. Andrew Weiss is the former director of the RAND Corporation's Center for Russia and Eurasia. Evelyn Farkas was U.S. Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Russia, Ukraine, and Eurasia. Steve Clemens is founder and senior fellow of the American Strategy Program at the New America Foundation. Their conversation was held June 25th in Aspen, Colorado. Make sure to subscribe to Aspen Ideas To Go wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow Aspen Ideas year-round on Twitter and Facebook at Aspen Ideas. Today's show was produced by Marcy Krivenin and recorded by our team at the Aspen Institute. The Aspen Ideas Festival programming team is Kitty Boone, Killeen Brutman, Katie Cassetta, Libby Franklin, Brett Howley, Peter Kaplan, Jamie Miller, and me. Our music is by Wonderly. I'm Trisha Johnson. Thanks for joining me.